0: Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast and part two of our comparison of addiction treatment in the United States and the United Kingdom. Our panelists today are Dr. John Ewing, Dr. David Nelson, Kathy Coacher, and Dr. Brian Kidd. So I'd like to address <coughs> things. Uh, Brian, you're quite correct that um, uh, substance use disorder management is heavily based in psychotherapy here. And there is a split in psychotherapy. Um, So initially, many of the substance use counselors were people who uh, had had a problem with substances themselves. And so uh, they would be hired, in some cases, to run residential settings uh, to help people uh, maintain abstinence. And um, the abstinence-only approach was predominant, and it did have a strong basis in AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, which was started by this guy, Bill, who happened to have been a machine gunner in World War I, developed uh, probably some PTSD and um, had great difficulty with abstinence. And so he and some friends gathered and uh, there's a, a heavy Christian overlay to a lot of their practices. And the 12 steps came from one day, Bill had a cold. And while he was laying in bed with his cold, he came up with the 12 steps. And so so it's just this arbitrary thing that somebody with a cold wrote down on a piece of paper, but it's somehow become a gospel. And when you look at it, it's a type of cognitive therapy when you take a lot of the the mysticism out of it. And uh, also, a little bit of relationship repair so there's a little mm-hmm. bit of the dbt approach to it so uh the end result is that a lot of the substance use counselors and psychotherapists got paid a lot less than regular psychotherapists and so then these regulations come along that require additional certification if you're going to treat some sub- people with substance use disorders and then you're going to make less money uh just it baffles my mind and that's still present actually. Mm-hmm. The the other thing they did was they said, Oh, you can't you can't
1: do this work just because you have lived experience that yeah. doesn't qualify okay. you anymore.
0: Yeah. And so all those people got let go in favor of hiring people that had the degrees mm-hmm. and the specific training. And it's interesting, you know how the
1: pendulum always swings. Now yeah. we're putting a lot of value in peer support and we're bringing yeah. people in that have lived experience as, you know, as part of treatment teams. So it's kind of coming back again. But uh, that was a a big upheaval and I was I was doing my internship at the time
0: in the Substance Abuse Clinic
1: again. So, you know, when that happened and it was it was tough, it was very difficult.
0: So one of the main features of the 12-step approach is that pause and reflect on what it is you want and what your goal is. Viktor Frankl, uh, after his experiences in a concentration camp, uh, came to the idea that there's a little moment between the time that something happens and you react to it. And in expanding that moment lies freedom. And so uh, Brian brought up that when people are just being overwhelmed, when they're being submerged in all of these unwelcome thoughts and ideas, it's almost like the brain weasels are having a party and they're dancing on your face. And uh, so, yes, people get drawn into these movies created by our brain weasels, mm. and uh, their plans and intentions go out the window. Um, so there's this, this feature in the brain, the basal ganglia, or some people call it the septum or striatum, uh, where habit lives. And all of our learned routines are there waiting to be engaged once the frontal lobe is suppressed. And so being able to help people grab just a little bit of that ability to deliberate the bris the scales to weigh those different ideas and decide which path they want to to go down Uh, there's a lot of benefit to that and it's it's maddening that substance use disorder management is so highly regulated Uh, we've got so many bits of paper and whatnot that we have to keep track of so many signatures It's just astonishing. Um, It just raises the expense and makes people not want to be in the field and uh, deprives people of treatment. And so, uh, Brian, tell me about the psychotherapy there in Scotland, Um, uh, since we've done so well with it here.
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. As as I said, um, uh, right at the very beginning, I said I was the first psychiatrist in in Fourth Valley uh, to be an addiction psychiatrist to have that label, if you like. So, in terms of psychiatrists, you know, doctors who who who, who um, specialize in psychiatry, uh, we have to do a one year endorsement, as it's called. So the expectation is that we will have done a year's training in a specialist unit, trained as part of our higher training. So you get a kind of ticket that says you can be an addictions person. Um, when I came to Scott, back to Scotland in 1996, more than half the health boards um, in Scotland had no addiction psychiatrist at all. So there was no, for probably half the population, there was no addiction psychiatrist. There were probably um, nursing-based services. We have community psychiatric nurse services. So in rural places, where i live is tayside Perthshire. it's a pretty rural area um highlands very rural so delivering services to these kind of places is quite complicated now the distances are nothing like your distances but you know you're still talking about towns that are you know 50 miles 100 miles apart down single track roads so it's quite difficult to to go about delivering um uh, services in that kind of a way so the, by 1996 there was not a lot of addiction medical care, specialist addiction medical care available with trained practitioners. At this point it's maybe an idea to give you a little history lesson and reverse slightly and maybe just say how did we get to there because I think it says a lot about about why we have the deficits that we have. So um, in Britain, because we were, as a as a nation, I mean, obviously, you know, we used to we used to own America and most of the rest of the world, so we were, um, uh, you know, we were quite important, and we were also we we also um, owned the sources of opium, and we were the first international drug dealing nation um, mm-hmm. back in the 18th century, and um, and through the 19th century, and what that what the result of that was that people who were around that environment, people who were working in in India, Afghanistan, uh, Middle and Far East, would come back to the UK with their with their spouses and might have uh, uh, an affinity for opium um, or something like that. And they would have problems, so engineers who couldn't work or ministers who couldn't work or doctors who couldn't work or soldiers who couldn't work. And Britain developed an approach where doctors could supply them with opium. And that was called the British system back in the um, 18th century so essentially it was very early harm reduction you know it was basically supplying you with an opioid replacement supplied by a doctor in order to allow you to carry on functioning and nobody really got too excited about it um, and the numbers were relatively low of course the population was relatively low at that time If we come through the 19th century and get into the early 20th century British system patients there's something like 300 or so in the UK and these are registered drug addicts so these are people who have signed a bit of paper and said I'm a drug addict please give me the diamorphine and um, and doctors have got that relationship with them they would access any other support uh, independently it was not it was not remotely associated with the medical treatment that they were receiving from probably just their GP or perhaps a a Harley Street specialist or whatever and the people the, the patients the because um, we, I still call them patients, um, but the, the people who were accessing care because of their suffering um, um, were um, generally middle-class privileged individuals. These were not under, you know, socially excluded an um, un- un- underclass of some sort. That cons- continued through the 20th century right up to the 1960s. Although there were one or two attempts. To reconsider the British system, driven by America, actually after both wars. So uh, as we became more indebted to the USA, America, one of the things America would try to do would be to get us to change our approach to substances, uh, and and become more keen on abstinence, which uh, which we resisted. There were government reports in the twenties, um, which showed very clearly that we were dedicated to this kind of approach, but then. Um, the 1960s brought sex and drugs and rock and roll. And, um, and uh, you know, the result of that was that we suddenly had more young people, um, a much higher proportion of young people developing substance use problems. And that became a true public health issue. So to give an idea of how much it changed, you're talking about 300 registered drug addicts in the late 50s, 3,000 registered drug addicts by the early, mid-1960s and the demographic had changed. So instead of middle-class, adult, middle-aged people, they had become young people. So young people were now accessing drugs via doctors who were prescribing them diamorphine under the British system. So it had become a problem, almost an iatrogenic problem, and the number of registered drug addicts was rocketing. The result of that was government policy which uh, did two things. First thing was it brought in a kind of control system, the Misuse of Drugs Act, which basically, a bit like America I think, controls the um, manufacture, storage and supply of a range of controlled drugs which are supposedly graded in terms of their risks and um, risks to life. So, um, so schedule one um, uh, drugs will be things like heroin, and cocaine. Um, And if you are dealing and supplying heroin and cocaine, theoretically, you could get life imprisonment. Uh, Nobody ever does, but you could, theoretically. Um, That was started in 1971 and then modified over the course of the next few years. And that um, came alongside a move away from harm reduction and to abstinence abstinence-orientated treatments. So there was a, a drive to have detoxification units, large they were called drug dependency units and they were mainly around the south of england and the midlands of england where the large conurbations were um and these were like factories where people went in and got detoxified so the technical detoxification was done using you know drugs like uh, clonidine and things like this and benzodiazepines um and then they would kind of get churned out and as 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 david said you know um having having been having had their um Um, their coping mechanism beautifully removed and uh, uh, their brain turned inside out. Um, So these people would of course go straight back to uh, quite hazardous uh, illicit substance use. That continued until 86 and in 86 we got HIV in the drug using population and that was identified in general practice in Edinburgh actually by a colleague of mine called Roy Robertson. And he was one of these GPs who was interested in doing research. So he would take blood tests from people. It was before there was any real governance of clinical research. So he had a fridge full of blood, uh, which he was using from drug users who he was treating. um, And he was sending off blood tests for various things, hepatitis B, things like that. And people talked, HIV was appearing. No one knew much about it, which is hard to imagine now, but you'll remember what it was like at the time. And uh, and he thought, I wonder if this HIV is in this blood. So he sent off his hepatitis B samples, and more than fifty percent of them were HIV positive in Edinburgh. And it was a it was a public health thing. He was on the in the press. It was a huge issue, and it suddenly turned everything round to a very harm reduction orientated approach. But harm reduction meant needle exchanges with. Well, mainly needle exchanges, not really harm reduction counselling, not really risk management you know, or any of that stuff. It was really getting your needles in your syringes, which were very limited by law in this country. And opioid replacement therapy and methadone really took off at that point. Um, uh, and that was the drive from really the late 80s on Trouble was, there was no investment because we were by this time we were well into the Margaret Thatcher government, and that government was very like the uh, Reagan government. They were totally driven by Milton Friedman, Chicago School e- economics. Sell off the public services. You know, the NHS was was shrinking. The, my, the national health service, which which I worked within was just shrinking. Every year you had to save between three and five percent of your budget year on year on year on year on year. So everything was was shrinking. Um, so the idea that you would invest in this bunch of ne'er-do-wells who happen to have given themselves an infection um, through their own um, behaviors was not something which society at that time was really that interested in supporting, other than a few Mm. vociferous people. So there was no money. And that was how things were right up until 1998. So I became a consultant in 96, and my service was tiny. Uh, I had six nurses and a consultant for a population of Um, 280,000. I had... the, 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 The target population would probably be about... Seven, eight hundred people who should be in treatment, and we had about ninety in treatment at that time. Um, and uh, by the time I left, we had two hundred in treatment, but that's still twenty-five percent of the of the the likely prevalence um, who are in need of uh, access to treatment. Um, we got nineteen ninety eight. The government changed, and we got a Labour government. Uh, that government then gave us a Scottish Parliament, and the Scottish Parliament started to invest. But the capacity problem was huge. The, the likely target population for Scotland was about 55,000 people, and this is based on good quality prevalence research. So they were doing a, they were using a, a, an approach called capture-recapture, which is a public health model which allows you to identify hidden populations. So I won't go into the details of that. But they they came up with a figure with a very very large variance. It has to be said, but about 55,000, and and that's been done three times since 2000, and that prevalence has remained the same. Services got bigger and bigger and bigger, but the services only got bigger in terms of um, opioid replacement therapy prescribing services, and these were largely services that were delivered by non-specialists. So GPs could do a very small training scheme, which was basically how to start someone on methadone without killing them, and um, and they would start prescribing methadone for people and you'd get gps prescribing for 500 people um, and um, the numbers of people in treatment increased very significantly but by the time i retired in 2018 we still had only about 45 percent of the likely target population in any kind of treatment and a tiny proportion of these people were in any kind of abstinence oriented treatment So the emphasis was get them on methadone, keep them on methadone and if they try to come off methadone, stop them doing that. Um, People like me, who were more into the whole holistic side, tried to do things like get clinical psychologists appointed. Again, just like there weren't psychiatrists, there was virtually no clinical psychologists working in drug addiction. There was some working in alcohol, very few in drugs and they're very hard to come by, and most services struggle to find any kind of specialist uh, clinical psychologists. The idea of accessing a range of psychological therapies, of psychotherapies, you know, of of dynamic psychotherapies and so on, forget it. We do have counsellors, and some of them are supported by trained psychologists Uh, and supervisors but many of them as, as you've said are people who've had lived experience but who haven't had the degree of professional development that would help them to become more effective and many of them again are very harm reduction orientated rather than recovery orientated so um access to psychological therapies in my country if you have an addiction problem is hugely problematic um in terms of my the service I left, when I took over that service, so it, the, the target population for that service um, was somewhere in the ballpark of 5,000 people. So across the whole of Tayside, you would anticipate there would be 5,000 people who would have the type of problems with substances that would require some kind of specialist input, about 5,000 of them. Um, when I started there were 817 people in treatment that and that was on methadone um, and by the time I left there was about 2400 on some treatment which included some detoxifications but even when we set up detox services so we commissioned detox services sometimes in collaboration with third sector organizations who might have hostels or places where people could be Could actually go and stay and detoxify. Some nice models, where people were using generic um, um, facilities and they were they had sort of flats that they could use and they could staff and support people to go through detoxification and link them in to abstinence orientated or recovery orientated groups or um, counselling agents or counselling interventions. These services just did not get used. So the, 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 the pipeline didn't recognize recovery. Um, and if, you were, if we were having this conversation and there were a bunch of sort of died in the wool nurses from the field, and you would say, what are the chances of somebody um, coming off methadone? They'd say zero. How many patients that you've looked after have come off opioid replacement therapies? None. Um, and these were people in there who'd been working for 25, 30 years. So there's a, there was a very pessimistic, rather heavy environment within which we've been working. But maybe I should stop there and let you ask some questions. I'm going to go on to the recovery movement after that, because it, it, because it, it, it gave us a kind of a sense of some positivity. Didn't last long, though.
0: So... This is fascinating, and I'd I'd like to give a little bit of background about what happened here in the U.S. Um, so in the U.S., uh, they came out with product labeling where you had to list the ingredients, and that was along about 1900. And once the ingredients were listed of all these patent medicines, uh, it became obvious that, oh, my gosh, about one out of seven housewives in the Midwest is using opium and a lot of people were dying from it. And Auntie M, who spent all her time upstairs sick, was, <laughs> was, was uh, on opium. So um, uh, I think it was likely an extension of the temperance movement, but people uh, uh, came together and, and so they came up with uh, only uh, registered physicians could prescribe opiates for a legitimate medical purpose. So um, then, of course, the, the underworld, which uh, in San Francisco in particular and in, in uh, the Western United States, oftentimes there would be opium dens from China. Chinese would, would run these opium dens. And of course, they had some underworld figures. Uh, I think they were the Tong. And they had a relationship with the uh, Federal Narcotics Bureau agents. And so in the book, Silent Scream, it's rumored that um, the, uh, this, this, these opium dens approached the Narcotics Bureau uh, agents to, to tell them that, hey, these doctors over here are prescribing heroin to these people and that's cutting into our market. And so uh, they went and rounded up a bunch of doctors and charged them for drug dealing and it went all the way up to the supreme court where it was ruled that addiction is not a disease you're indulging their um their uh, carnal habits and it's not a disease and therefore there's no legitimate reason to prescribe any sort of an opiate to someone for an addiction so for years that's the abstinence only approach and there was this uh, special prison that they would send the people with narcotics problems to in Kentucky. Uh, the, uh, and they called it the farm. Um, and people would typically stay there for two years and do work and do groups. And mostly they'd sit around and tell war stories about how high they got at, at thus and such. And then almost all of them would lapse back to opiates when they got out, 98%. So they had a 2% success rate. It was in this environment, this revolving door of going in and out of of prisons, that um, uh, the methadone clinics developed in about the mid-1960s. And the workaround was that you could dispense the methadone and not prescribe it. And so for many years, that was the way it was, and there just weren't enough methadone clinics. And it's very inconvenient for people to have to Go in daily to get their dose, um, so that structure is actually good for some people, but it's 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 also sort of limiting and annoying. Um, so uh, they finally, the VA, uh, the Veterans Administration, uh, here helped uh, reckitt Ben Kaiser to develop uh, Suboxone, which was a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, and um, So this under the data 2000 act, which uh, really became more widely known about 2004, 2005, uh, then physicians could prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder if you had a special certificate. And so in the midst of all of this, this is how abstinence only uh, processes and psychotherapy, since there were no medications, Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.